Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What do you remember about growing up? I remember, you know, growing up in a, in a, a time where my, my dad was a shift worker, worked all night quite often. What my was mom, he doing? He's an electrician at the cold face. So, you know, it was a, a tough job. So underground, yeah? Underground. He actually took me to the coal face when I was about 12-year-old and told me not to follow in his footsteps, which Good. was a... Smart guy. Which was a, a real sort of... Um, well, it, it, it just opened your eyes. I mean, you couldn't believe it. You know, as I got there, there was men coming out of the shaft and my dad was showing, well, that's where I started. He was... And he was he was right to do it, you know. I mean, he, he we were good footballers at, at at kids, you know. Myself, my brother, and I have a younger brother as well who was a good footballer, um, and he wanted us to really concentrate on that side of it, you know. But I'm son of a miner. Most of my family have been in the mines most of their lives, so I was brought up in in the in northeast Linemouth to start with, which is well in the northeast. My dad moved down to Peterlee, which is one of the new towns, and worked at uh, Horden Colliery and Blackhall Colliery. Uh, my mum did cleaning work, so they were always at work, and and uh, it was a tough upbringing. In all fairness, you know, your, your uncle is a local historian, mm. and you've um, this is very poor radio, but I think a very good thing to talk about. Uh, he's written a load of books about local history in that area. One of which you've brought through today, and rather beautiful picture of your mum as a very young woman, yeah. um, and also the hair standing on the, on my head now as I'm thinking about yeah. it, and a picture of your dad, not as a coal miner, but in a, a, a fantastically beautiful looking and traditional northern brass band or brass band as I yeah, brass band. should learn to say. Yeah, my dad was into music, you know, very heavily, so played the cornet, played most uh, of, of of those sort of instruments in brass bands, and ended up being a, a conductor, wrote music. Uh, he was really, really talented. Uh, was I mean, again, hadn't said this to you prior to, to today, but he was an artist as well. He used to draw a lot. He was a very talented person for, for someone who worked down the pit, you know, and uh, I think that talent, which he possibly thought he might have wasted in his life, he wanted to make sure that the family sort of uh, used whatever talents they have to, to better things. Apart from your evident football skill, did you inherit any of his, his other talents? Can you draw? Can you play a musical instrument? No, we, we did lots of other things. You know, we went out. I mean, he was he was into, he loved wildlife. So as, as youngsters, when we came home from school, if he, was at, if he wasn't at work, he'd have a haversack satchel packed with sandwiches and we used to go down the local deans. We, he used to show us birds where birds nested. We used to, he learned, he taught us all things about that out, out, outside life taught us how to climb trees and all sorts of things you know we, we were real outgoing sort of kids he was a great role model to us you know he's a fantastic man I mean that might be very important to you in later in our story that we're going to unfold over the next two hours here on My Sporting Life because um, football can become such an obsession with people that uh there appears to be nothing else in their lives. But I guess if you've had an upbringing like that, you must never have allowed yourself to be painted in that corner, or am I wrong? No, I I, 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 dream, I always dreamt of being a football player. 
you know, and, and I, I can remember writing, you know, in my school project books what I wanted to be, but it was, I, I, I dreamt of being this, but I was realistic enough to say, you know, if I had to work in a factory, this is the sort of, I'd, I'd, I'd do that, or I wanted to be a car mechanic if I wasn't going to be a footballer. Um, so I, I think I was, I've always been quite realistic in my, in, in my sort of, um, targets in life but i genuinely always wanted to be a sports person you're you're, you're so kind you also brought in your 1964 school diary report yeah. book what would you call that little document what is that little that's document? a little diary from yeah. my school well, which, your, your, which your father's my, made sure you've done all your music lessons yeah he's he's, <laughs> oh, he's written lots of music in there for me to look at and and uh you know we all tried to play the cornet in fact uh, my middle brother alan who became a footballer yeah. as well he was quite good at the cornet but uh Again, he gave that up uh, some time ago. And a very, very touching story, which again I can show you. I have a, my son now is 12. My, da my dad died four years ago. And uh, the day he died, I went up to school. And um, my 12 year old, well, 12 year old, my eight year old son came out carrying a cornet. He was going to start to play the cornet. He took this cornet out of school the very day my dad died. And that was, that was quite freaky. When I told my mum, you know, my mum said, well, he sent us a message. So, um, yeah, it was a real touching moment, to be honest. Um, Brian, you're playing football in the North East, but you eventually sign um, for a club in Division 3, can you believe it, the third level of English football um, in the Midlands, Aston Villa. How did that come about? Well, uh, as a youngster, I mean, the football's completely different back in the 70s as it is today, you know. So as a youngster, I was, you know, playing school football and, and, and for East Durham boys. And I was invited to quite a few clubs, to be honest. I went to Manchester City as a youngster, a 13-year-old. I went to West Bromwich Albion. I went to Leeds United. I went to Newcastle and Sunderland. So you're obviously very good. These are the big clubs at the time. And yeah, and, 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 and then I was invited down to, to Aston Villa based on the fact that Malcolm Musgrove, is a, a dis, is rel, related to the family in the northeast, mm -hmm. and uh, Malcolm had, had been told by some of my relatives that you know I was doing reasonably well. So without even seeing me, I was invited down to Aston Villa, and the minute I saw it, I, I have to say quite honestly, that's really where I wanted to go. I don't know why. I can't answer the yeah, question. People just have a connection I with just, some things, I don't just, they? I remember going to a game and there was a, a big right back called Dick Edwards who played for them in the early seventies, uh, uh, late sixties, I would say, and. Um, I was invited in the dressing room afterwards. He was sitting there with a guitar singing a song, and I thought, you know, this is brilliant. I just was hooked on it. Um, there was something about Villa Park. There was something about the area. For whatever reason, I liked it, you know, and I just wanted to go there. You signed for them, as I say. They were in um, Division 3, the old third level. Um, they just been relegated, um, and yet they reached the League Cup final that very first year you were there, 1970-71. Yeah, as a, as a young professional, um, that's that was my first season as a young pro. I did sign for the club in 1969 okay. as an apprentice. So, yeah. I mean, I was an apprentice for two years. Uh, at 15, I travelled with the first team, which was brilliant, um, along with a lad called Jimmy Brown, who, who became the youngest player ever to play for Aston Villa. So, um, uh, I, in 71, I played a couple of games in, in Division 3 for the, for the team at 17-year-old. And, you know, it was the start of the comeback. I mean... My, probably one of the earliest memories of Aston Villa is them playing Bournemouth with, with 50 odd thousand people there. Bournemouth had Ted McDougall up top. It was an incredible game and, and Villa won 2 1 in the end. Um, but, it, it, you know, those, those early memories of, of Villa Park uh, all standing, you know, thousands and thousands of people there, third division, believe it or not. And, um, uh, you know, to see the club today. In, in in its magnificence is is fantastic for me. Although probably nearer to the third division than any time for a long time, Brian. Yeah. Um, the uh, as I say, the, they reached the uh, the League Cup final um, in '71, the first cup final I ever attended. Uh, when Martin Chibbers' two goals 
um, won, the, won the cup for Spurs. But they also had a brilliant youth team. This is where you were really playing your mm. football. And in the days when the FA Youth Cup really told you what kind of um, young players a club had, Aston Villa won it in 1972. Tell us about that. Yeah, we um, we had a good side. Um, we had a lot of the lads who eventually played first-team football all over the I country. I counted seven of them went were, on to yeah, play full Off the top football. of my head, there'd be Jake Finlay, uh, Bobby MacDonald, John Gidman, myself, my brother Alan played pro football. Tony Betts went off to America and played fo- pro football. Right. Dougie George went off to Holland and played pro football out there. So Amazing. The, we, we, we had a really good side. We played Liverpool in the final. Uh, Phil Thompson played for the Liverpool team that year, uh, but we also beat uh, we beat Chelsea in the in the in the run up to it. We, yeah, it was a, it was a great time for us. You know, we were, we had a tremendous bunch of players, and 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 several of us played quite a few games for us. Just remind you that John Gidman scored the opening goal in the two legged final um, at uh, Villa Park in front of seventeen thousand yeah. people. <clears throat> um, you scored two goals at Anfield, yeah. uh, winning four two. So you, overall, you won the cup. Um, by five, five goals to two. And as you say, eight members mm. of that team went on to be full-time professional footballers. Incredible. And actually, we can hear now from uh, the goal scorer of the first <laughs> goal, great friend of yours, of course, went on to play for England while still full-back uh, for Aston Villa. This is John Gidman, who we spoke to earlier on. And here he talks about that side and his memories of you, Brian, during those times. The first time I ever bumped into Brian was when uh, I was released from Liverpool and uh, I got the chance of a, a month's trial. And I was thrown into the youth team um, with the, the late Frank Upton, and uh, Brian was one of the the squad players then, and uh, with the youth team. And uh, I think, if I've got it correctly, he just signed professional the week before. I think uh, Villa. He just turned 17, and uh, Villa offered him professional uh, papers, and um, that was the first, more or less, meeting I had with him as. Uh, is a, a sort of like intro, but um, after the month, my my fortune turned uh, in, in, into a good thing where I signed pro, and then two sort of like hit it off, you know. Uh, started off in the youth team that year. We uh, we had a great year. I mean, going on to win the cup, uh, and funny enough for me, it was against Liverpool. But you could see the quality of what Brian had that was coming through then, you know. He could have played in the first team at that stage. He was he was that good. Uh, he was confident. He was quick. So skillful. Um, he was absolutely everything that uh, a manager dreams of at times uh, for a kid coming through at uh, 17. And um, he, he showed all the qualities of a, a fantastic, great player, you know, with the skills and his quickness as his agility and he you know it wasn't just his right foot at times he, he used the left and it was uh, it was a pleasure to play with him and, and watch him you know in, in every way I mean um, and then two of us then went on that summer to, to play for England youth in the mini world cup out in Spain which we won again he was he was just an excellent striker. He talked about Trevor Francis being the wonder boy, but um, I, I'd put Brian on the same level as him, you know. Wow. Praise indeed there from your old teammate and mate, uh, John Gibman. <clears throat> um, as you say, Aston Villa's fortunes reached their low point um, around the time that you signed. And yeah. after that, it was uh, upwards and onwards. Uh, you, you, you played eventually in the first team in the 71-72 <clears throat> season. 
A um, couple of appearances. And Villa won the title. So that really was the start of a rise that season. Go back to European champions. And in that early 70s, you're, you're getting into the team then, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, it was an incredible period. As I've said, you, you talk about third division playing in front of 50,000 people. It was it was brilliant. Was there, were there really fifty thousand people yeah, at Villa Park? Seriously, yeah, all standing, yeah, definitely. I I, I would check the gate of, of the Bournemouth, no, no. and I'm I'm convinced it was fifty thousand right. people there. It was incredible, you know. And, and for a youngster to play, and and as you mentioned, the youth team, you know, we had seventeen thousand at the final. We played Birmingham in one of the knockout rounds, and it was there was this big build thing about Trevor Francis for them and and me for. And we had 20,000 at Villa Park and 18,000 at Birmingham. Uh, so, you know, we had incredible, incredible crowds that, that year. And I think even the crowd then could sense that there was something coming through, you know, and um, it, it was a, it was an incredible period. And as you say, you know, uh, some, what, 12 years on from there, 10, 12 years from there, the club was winning the European Cup. So for, to come back so quickly was a massively in, in, incredible period, which um, we loved every minute. And John and I, you know, we've done some some great things together we had some fantastic nights me and him he was wild you know and well, I, so you're blaming John Gibman are I, you absolutely I, I mean I was always sensible enough to, to grab hold of him and take him home just at, just at the right time but we had some wonderful times me and him I mean and, and that was the days of course when footballers even young footballers weren't in the public eye and there were no um, cam- camera phones which yeah just, but which, you know I mean it, it was an, we were ordinary lads you know I mean even as a first team player when we were regular first-team players, the only thing we did after the game was go out to the local pub, sit and wait for the sports pink paper to come in, sit with the fans, and come back in the pub and go, oh, I only got a seven today. And all, you know, you, know, you just you sit with the fans. We were brought up with that era. It was just completely different. You'd have a couple of pints with the, the fans after the game. You know, we were very ordinary. You know, the game has progressed unbelievably in many respects. It's so professional nowadays. It's better in many, many ways yeah. and not quite so good in others. The connection, you're talking well, about exactly. already, between between the professionals and the, and the supporters who pay for them I has think gone. I, I think our era is... is my year, there's a, perhaps a 10-year era after me as a player. In the 70s where, and 80s, the 70s are the, are the and great 80s. eras of English but, football, but we, yeah. we, we actually relish, you know, like evenings where you speak to the fans we have great fun we spe- we tell great stories we can tell stories about going out and having a drink with them and they, and they love it you know and we weren't we weren't different to them you know we weren't we the football was you know and, and every every man's sport in those days you um as i said they won the title villa they get back into division two um they almost get promoted 72 73 finished mm-hmm. third in the days when only two <clears> went up there were no playoffs um, and I guess the next big thing that happens is that Ron Saunders arrives, um, a tough, rather military-looking gent yeah. with a reputation for taking no nonsense. What are your recollections of how you got on with Ron Saunders? Well, I didn't, to be honest. Uh-huh. <laughs> I never did. I mean, we, and yet, you know, later why, on... Why, Brian, why? Well, because, I mean, the first time I met them, I'd played uh, almost a full season in the in the uh, first team. And in those days, you, you, your contract was... 73, was 74, yeah. Yeah, so I... I, I was called in to, to, to meet him at the end of the season. He'd come in and he just looked at me and went, who are you? Which was his first opening gambit. So that straight away made me feel about two. That's just two, rude though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you know, and, 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 and the case of, you know, you couldn't argue, you were give, offered a contract. I think I was offered something like £25 a week or something ridiculous like that. And um, uh, he, he would, the thing is with Ron Saunders, until, until I actually became a football manager, I didn't realise, you know, a lot of the things he actually did with me were, 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 were motivational in many respects. He could be very harsh. I mean, I, I was a regular first-team player. I've seen lots of, of young players almost melt on the training ground with them. You know, we, we used to have... Uh, in those days, there was 14 players trained with the first team, 14 with the reserves. 
and we had a, a string of, say, three or four youngsters who were always in and out. So you'd get claret shirts and blue shirts. So the 14 blue shirts were out. You can imagine two lads coming in, the you know, first-team shirts next to them that go out, train with the first team. And then you'd see Ron Saunders walking over the park with two different bib uh, shirts in his hand to send two people off with the reserve team. And he used to just chuck them at the kids and go, you and you over there. And he used to destroyed them. I, I, I just, I, the way he treated people, you know, it's typical <laughs> 70s, I'm in charge, you just get over. He was terrible at things like that. But there were also other things, because with me, he used to say to me, oh, it's him again. You know he can't tackle. He can just do whatever he wants. Leave him. I'm fed up of talking to him. But in a way, he was being complimentary to me. Yeah, and you he's know, telling the coaches. He's it, telling everybody, is. just let him do what he wants. He won't do this. He's not going to do that. But So just let him play. And at the time, I used to think, oh, God, you know, he hates me. But on reflection later on, he was actually playing me a massive compliment, wasn't he, really? Uh, Brian, we're talking about 1974-75 as being a fantastic season for Aston Villa. We're talking about the fact that they get promoted back into the Premier League during that season, but they also reached um, the League Cup final. Um, talk to me about the League Cup final run. Well, it was it was a it was a great occasion for us, you know. We were second division and and uh, and and getting to a cup final. It was it was brilliant. We just believed in ourselves. We had a period, I think it was from. End of November, early December. I think we lost one game from then till the end of the season. You know, we just uh, we we were just on a real roll. You know, we 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 could play anybody. We believed we could beat anybody, uh, and it, it finished off with a with with the final, of course. And that was an indication of what a quality season it was that year in the second level of English football. Manchester United were in yeah. that league. Um, yourselves uh, went to the League Cup final, and Norwich City, yeah. who also reached at least the League Cup final, was an all second division affair. It was, yeah. It was, uh, it was a, a tough game, a close game, very hard fought game. I mean, you know, playing against people like Duncan Forbes, it wasn't easy. There, there were some tough lads who played around in those days, you know. So we, uh, it was a good battle. We knew each other inside out. Um, we won with a penalty. Ray Graydon took the penalty. It was saved. And then he put the rebound back in. So, well, uh, why, why don't we actually uh, relive that moment? As I say, the penalty was given when Chris Nichols' header yeah. was handled on the line by the aforementioned Mel Machin. Uh, Mel the Machine, as he's known at Manchester City, <laughs> where he's manager, of course, in his time. Well, you're the star striker. Why weren't you taking that penalty? I, I only ever took one penalty, and it was right on half time. I'd already scored two goals, and I can remember it. Uh, and it might even have been earlier that season, I think, because... Um, we were, I think we were 4-0 up and I'd scored two and we got a penalty right on half-time and I decided to take the penalty. And I can I can still hear Ron Saunders, don't let him take screaming <laughs> from the dugout, not him. Well, I actually tried to nutmeg the goalkeeper. And the minute I've tried to nutmeg the goalkeeper from... You know, you used to chip them these days. Yeah, yeah. I actually tried to nutmeg the goalkeeper right on half-time. How did that go for you, Brian? Uh, it, well, it didn't go in the back of the net. And it, let me tell you, <laughs> half-time in that dressing room was murder for me. Fortunately, I scored a hat-trick as it was in the second half, but recovered. But that was typical Ron Saunders and typical me, I guess, in those days. And as I say, following that fantastic win in the League Cup, um, Villa also get promoted as in a season... Where, you know, we'd already mentioned Manchester United and Norwich were also yeah. in it. Uh, um, talk to me about the promotion. I mean, it was brilliant. I mean, that season for me, and 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 the final itself was probably the the game that got me into an England squad at the end of that season. You know, which which was was great. And and I think that the way we played that year, you know, that that was the I could see myself getting in the England team, even though I was you know twenty one and not in the in the top flight. Ready to pop the question. The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Question I always ask strikers. Who were your opposition during your career to get into the England team? Trevor Francis, for one. Yeah. Um, Tony Woodcock was another. With who was who? You know, a year on from there, he and Peter With were were incredible as a partnership. Uh, so there were the two main type yeah. of players who who would have been. And of course, Keegan was around. You know, when I played for the England team, that 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 was the the group of people that were there. Um, uh, Mike Shannon was around as well. You know, I mean, there was there was a lot of good players, similar type players to I me. Only, I only asked the question because when you look now, the England scraping the barrel, pretending that midfielders are strikers and mm. things like that. Just think, I think about people like yourself, uh, Stan Collymore, my colleague here at Talksport, who we'll talk about a little later yeah. on. Of course, a big name in your mm-hmm. uh, managerial career. Um, he can list off twenty brilliant strikers he was competing with during the time. You only got the one England cap, and that was at the end of that seventy four yeah. seventy five season against Wales. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, well, it was brilliant. You know, I mean, I, I it was Wales. The the team hadn't done so well in the in the first game. I got in, I was called on. I think I'd had a good training session. I remember playing. Re- we had a training session where I was bright, and I remember Don Revy saying to me, "Hey, you you're nice and bright this morning." And it was I really enjoyed it. it. Was you know a breath of fresh air for me. I was never been nervous playing football in my life, uh, so I trained with the team and did well. And he just told me I was on the bench. Well, there were two one down with twenty minutes to go. The next thing I know, I'm I'm, I'm chucked onto the field of play. Uh, got the ball, crossed it. Um, you know, David Johnson managed to score from it, which was funny. Why I never played for England again? I think it was three matches or four matches into the next season. I damaged my knee for the first time, and I was out for the entire, the most of the next season with it. And uh, by then, Trevor Francis got into the team. By then, Tony Woodcock was around the team, and I never got back. You didn't, but you still have that England shirt to remember. That one yeah. cap as a substitute in which you made a goal for David Johnson, as you say, rightly making his debut, one of his two goals. Um, you go down as one of those one-cap one wonders now, don't you? I'm, af- yeah. I'm afraid that's it. As you say, 75-76, um, um, only one goal for you the following season, but was that were you injury hit yeah, that year? Yeah, I, I got injured up at Everton. I remember um, hurting my knee. I remember getting off the team bus at the at, back at Villa Park. Um, and... I remember I had to drive home. I had an MGB GT, fortunately, so my leg was fairly flat and stretched out. And I remember I was sort of lifting my leg from from the the accelerator to the brake. How I got home, I don't really know, to be honest. You know, but I drove home. Uh, but from there on in, I was I was taken to work by a friend the next day, straight to hospital. Um, and I had my first knee operation. And 
But you go back to the seventies, you know. I mean, it. Uh, you know, it. it, it I, I think surgery has is improved unbelievably. No, no, people since. used to get cartilage operations that used to finish their football yeah, career. Yeah, well, now. that's pretty much with me. I mean, I, yeah. I was out. I remember I was in plaster for six weeks. Um, they decided because there was ligament damage as well. They, they decided to the, the cartilage was taken out. I've got a scar that big on 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 you know which is about three or four inches big on my knee, uh, and I was in plaster for for six to eight weeks. You know, and and it took me pretty much the whole season to recover from it. So it was a real after after five years of everything just going absolutely perfectly for me. You know, I suddenly hit the wall in some respects. Well, let's talk, let's talk about then the, the the event I think that helps Aston Villa become start on the road to becoming champions of Europe. It also uh, becomes part of a legendary partnership in your life. Um, in October um, that year, they sign Andy Gray from Dundee United. How important was that? Well, it was massive, you know. But and I remember, you know, I'd, I'd played up front with Andy Lockhead as a kid. I'd played up front uh, with a lad called Keith Leonard, who was six foot three, local lad, damaged his knee and never played again. Big Keith, but I'd played up front with two lads who you really used to look after me uh, and I remember meeting Andy at first I remember thinking well he's, he's six foot but he's not six foot four you know and, and mm-hmm. crikey how am I go- how, how, how am I going to get win little flick-ons off him I mean yeah. where's it uh, and then I went to Middlesbrough his first game was middle I, I can always remember it and I saw this lad hanging in the air flicking the ball down and I remember thinking my word this is incredible you know he was he was he was Unbelievable player. The thing is that I'm glad you said that because we've we've come to know Andy so much as a pundit mm. um, and a colleague here on Talksport. People people don't need to forget he was a brilliant footballer. He was brave as a lion, honestly. I, I I've never met anyone. I've never played with anyone like. I've never seen many players like him. He would head the ball in, you know, a foot off the ground. You know, he'd dive in with his head. He, he and and people say to me, "What was so good about?" And Andy's brilliant to me. He's played me a lot of compliments over the years. But you know something, when you've got a centre-forward who you just need to look at, then you look at the goal, and you just put the ball somewhere between him and the goal, and you know he's going to go for it. It was easy, really. Brian, we're talking about 1977 now, and uh, Andy Gray has joined Aston Villa. You and he have formed a lethal partnership up front, and the team is really coming on. I remember the 1977 League Cup final, or should I say League Cup finals, because there were three of them eventually. (laughs) Um, the last of which was one of the greatest games I can remember of of ding dong football um, against Everton. Tell me about the run first of all. You beat Manchester City, Wrexham, Millwall, and QPR. Was it an easy run to the final? Um, well, the Queens Park Rangers game was was difficult. I mean, we had it have a replay, and in fact, uh, that went to Highbury, didn't it? The old mm-hmm. uh, Arsenal Stadium, which uh, which was was great. And uh, yeah, again, that started my cup final off for me in many respects. I mean, I got a hat trick in the. Uh, in the semi-final, I was with Dennis Mortimer the other day, reminded me he set every goal up for me in, in terms Cap- of Cap- captain, of course, brilliant. the team that went on to win the European uh, Cup. Dennis, Dennis, for me was, you know, I mean, probably one of them. And to say he's underrated is wrong, but he never played for England, and yet, you know, he captain Aston Villa, captain Aston Villa when they won the European Cup later on. He was a terrific player, not to to play with. Yeah, so the semi-final was great for me. The final, um, the final itself was poor. The second, the first replay was a decent game at uh, Sheffield Wednesday. Yeah, it was 0-0 at Wembley. Yeah. Um, then uh, a few days later, it was 1-1 at Hillsborough. Um, but you were only all warming up for the big game, the yeah. third game. Well, the, 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 the beauty of that particular era was as well, you know, we, we were on appearance money and I think it was £500 appearance. So we were quite happy. And, mm-hmm. and I, think it, I think they decided then, for whatever reason, this was going to be the first game that if it was a draw again, it was either going to be a draw or penalties. I'm not sure what the decision was, but they, they weren't invented in those days. It was at Old Trafford. Yeah, it was at Old Trafford. Andy Gray missed the third and, game. Yeah. Andy Gray, Gray missed it, yeah, of course. But uh, 
Chris Nickel, my one of my other great friends, scored a, a goal from 35 yards, which he sort of thinks it was more like 65 yards. When when I speak to him, he goes on and on and on about his brilliant goal. Well, let me let me let me give outline the, the the events of the day for people. I mean, I, I can remember it like it was yeah. yesterday because you're sitting at home watching the television and this game goes. Um, Bob Latchford, a great yeah. player in his in his in his own right, gave Everton the lead after 38 minutes. Um, then there was an equaliser from Chris. As you say, um, he tells you it was a great goal. Yeah. Um, and that was in the 80th minute. You then scored uh, to put Villa 2-1 up with a few minutes to go. Yeah. Um, but Mike Lyons, um, the, uh, the centre-half, of course, for, 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 for Everton, equalised. Um, and then you scored an extra time winner deep, deep, deep um, into extra time. It was a sensational game. And of course, um, well, really, you you uh, you should have been given the trophy to keep there, didn't you? Score double figures in the tournament that year. I did, yeah, yeah. I had a terrific uh, run in in the uh, league cup that particular year. Um, so yeah, as I say, hat trick in the semi final. I scored two earlier at, at Hartlepool, and my brother played in the same team with me that night as well. So that was brilliant. That was back home. So my mum and dad actually saw us play together for Aston Villa's first team. Yeah, it was a great competition for me that year, and and obviously scoring a couple of goals. Uh, in the final itself was was magnificent. What kind of a what kind of a manager was Ron Saunders when he won a trophy? Did he find, manage to raise a smile? Yeah, I mean, in fairness, you know, I mean, on on the coach on the way back, you know, he'd always give everybody a drink and and have a, a laugh and a joke. But it was his build up to it. He was deadly serious then. But after games, I mean, he was fantastic. Jimmy Rimmer and all the lads from the you know who were around Dennis Mortimer, they, they loved Ron Saunders. They got on fantastically well with him. He 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 had people. He always. He, dealt with people in different ways and as I've said with me he was always harsh with me but as I've said time time teaches me that that harshness was was respect in some respects and I, I didn't quite understand that you know I actually saw him about three years ago and I I went up to him and apologized for my behavior um, and I said you know I, I, now that I've been a football manager I understand some of the problems you had and I'd just like to say sorry for the for, for if I was awkward, not too to nice, Brian. Yeah, but then he just looked at me and went, said thanks, and walked away from me. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't like me, and I, so I, I never, I never sort of got anything out of. It. But he was, you know, as I said, he, he had his own ways, and and uh, they certainly worked for him. I mean, we're going to get onto the difficult part of your career soon when the injury cuts yeah. you short in the middle, the peak of your career. Um, but there is at least one more huge highlight to come. Um, the following year, of course, having won the League Cup, you were in the UEFA Cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, Brian, uh, Brian Little, have scored at the new camp. Yeah, uh, with uh, Cruyff playing against uh, us. I mean, it was a, again an incredible experience. I mean, we you drew Barcelona in the quarterfinals. Yeah, we I think two two at Villa Park was the, was the first game. Ken McNaught you, might have scored both the you goals. You were two down at Villa Park, yeah. and Ken came back with two late goals to make it two two. Off you go to Barcelona. Off we went to Barcelona, and uh, we have a bit of pressure on them. I remember it bobbled around in the box, and I remember just prodding my my foot out, and it's gone in the back of the net. Um, to, to, to give Villa the lead, to give mind. us the lead, and then I think about two minutes later, Giddy got sent off, didn't he? I think John got sent off, and and uh, and the likes of of Cruyff sort of, Cruyff sort of wrecked us for the rest of the game. But uh, yeah, fantastic experience. And really, the rest of this story should be about you going on from one triumph to another, to another, to another. Um, and in a world now mm. where people have cruciate ligaments repa- repaired and come back three months later, as yeah. good as uh, as ever, um, it's. It's a less less common story now about footballers having to retire because of injury, but in your era, um, yeah. it was still it was still something that happened, and it happened to you. Tell us about what what actually went on. Well, my knee just kept swelling up all the time. Every time I tried to 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 come back, I had a 
I would um, I would train, and if I went flat out, I could play. You know, I could still do things. I was I was okay, and I could play at half pace, so to speak. I could play within myself, and even that. Sometimes people say, "Oh, you're all right. You you look great this morning in training," but I knew my knee wasn't right. And every time I really pushed, I used to get this massive swelling on it. So, I, eventually, I was sent down to 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 London to Harley Street the same day as Mike Pedg- with Mike Pedgick, who had pelvic problems. And Pedgick and myself were both told that day to... Re- play to, full, play full-back for England, yeah, of course, yeah. Pedge and I, the same day, were told by Harley Street specialists to just pack it in. It was never going to be the same. And um, There was no treatment, no operation they could have offered you? Well, they, they talked about um, experimental, you know, I mean, you know, replacing the ligaments, but it was totally experimental. They, nobody could guarantee, far from guarantee anything. In fact, you know, the advice was to, to just get out now while you can and... Um, yeah, that was pretty tough because I was, you know, I was 25 when I was injured, 26 probably last game, 27 retired uh, with nothing other than fo- a football background. In fact, it actually stopped you moving. Um, you'll have to explain to me how this yeah. works. You're an Aston Villa legend even in the, in the, in the seven or eight years you are there. Mm. You were going to Birmingham City. Well, I mean, as I've said, Ron Saunders and I had a few problems, as did Andy Gray and, and uh, John Gidman, my two, with the three musketeers, as we were known as in those days. We caused Ron plenty John actually of had musketeers' hair, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, we, we, we caused Ron quite a few problems. And in fairness, um, you know, Andy had, had moved on to Wolves. Andy had a few injuries, and, and, you know, getting through his medical was a surprise to us all. John went off to, uh, I think it was Everton, his yep. first move from, from Villa. Uh, and, and Ron came in to me and went, uh, Birmingham City want you. They just sold, sold Trevor Francis for a million pounds. Always Trevor Francis yeah. with you, isn't it? <laughs> Trevor Francis for a million. And Jim Smith wanted me. Well, I'd, you know, everybody knew Jim, and Jim had a great, repu- great yeah. reputation. So I was told to to fly out to Portugal to meet Jim Smith. And uh, and, and I met Jim, and uh, I had a great laugh with him, in all fairness. I remember him saying to me, no agents those days, well, what do you want? I said, well, I want a Capri 3-litre GT. And then I kept just kept going on, and I want this much a week and that much a week. And in the end, he just he just gave it all to me. So I technically signed for them, but failed my medical. And, um, you know, that was that was really tough. We're laughing about it now, but you made the, you made the point. I'm, th- I'm thinking back to your father mm. at, the, at the coal face um, and saying to you, don't end up down here. Um, but you, re- you retired at 27 years of age, and as you say... You don't really know anything else other than football. What do you think you were going to do, Brian? Do you know what? I worked in a printing company for three months with a, 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 one of the Aston Villa season ticket holders and uh, vice presidents, a fellow by the name of Stan Buggins. He invited me to work for him for three months. That's decent of him. Um, I spent three months in a printing company, and I still can't remember one word. Logo. That's about the only word I remember connected with with. With printing, he, I went in. He sent me out, gave me a sheet of paper to read through, and sent me out on the road to go and get some uh, some work for him. I, I was just completely lost. So I actually went back to Villa Park and worked in the club shop. I, I worked in the club shop selling behind the the, the stand in the, in the shop for three months, selling tickets, going round the pubs selling uh, lottery tickets for the club, because it was at least I was talking to people who I knew something and and had something relative to talk about. So, uh, but but life outside of football for. For for me, was a life that I really couldn't see, and I, I it just frightened it frightened me. You're dealing with it well all right now. At the time, how 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 upset were you? Do you know I'm pretty good at things like that. You know, I mean, I I have moments in my life on my own where I might have a little tear here, there, and everywhere. But generally speaking, in front of people or around people, um, I, I'm I'm reasonably strong. You know, and. Um, uh, so so no, I was okay. I pedge when the day we we were 
told to retire here, Pedge and I. Pedge was in bits. And, and, and let me tell you, I wouldn't fight with Med Pe- Mike Pedge because he is one tough cookie. But he was, I mean, he, he fights now. You know, he's like, he's into his, his martial arts. And even at 60 wow. odd, he's, he finished fifth in the in, in the Taekwondo World Championships about last year. <laughs> I still see Pedge. And, but Pedge cried his eyes out. But I was quite okay. But, you know, so... Uh, no, I was I was fine. I just got on with it. But it, you know, obviously, I, I having had the experience of working outside of football, I knew I had to stay in the game. First, I've got to ask you uh, lots of questions on Twitter about your hairstyle in the nineteen seventies. Well, I have a shaggy. Yeah, I I I genuinely hated the barbers, as they were called in those days. You know, when I was a young kid, my father used to march, frog march me to the barbers, short back and sides, a lot of the top. So I decided that I always wanted long hair, and I used to just cut my fringe by myself. And you're a big fan of rock music, so yeah. I think that must have been an influence. Yeah. You were like a glam rock star, weren't you? <laughs> yes, I think so. Yeah, there's there are a few crazy hairstyles, I guess. Uh, but indeed, uh, when I put you out on Twitter that you were going to be with me, uh, John Nicholson, the uh, uh, who writes so brilliantly about the Northeast and his detective novels. Um, text me and say, ask him about his love of Jethro Tull. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, as a young boy, I uh, remember being in Peter Lee and, and Jethro Tull, before they went really big, were playing in a pub called the Argus Butterfly. When I was a young kid, I just stood outside and listened to them. So, yeah, I have a, a, a long-standing uh, love of, of Jethro Tull music as I well. Hope, I hope we can get around to talking about the rock music <laughs> a little bit more. We left you at the end of the first half of the show, 27 years of age, not very good at the printing industry, and working in the club shop at Aston Villa, but you soon started to do coaching, yeah? Yeah, Ron Saunders left to go to Birmingham City, took Keith Leonard, who I'd played up front with for a while, uh, the youth coach with him. Tony Barton got the job, and, and, and Tony asked me to just to come in and help to start with if I wanted to do a bit of coaching. I'd done some community work and things like that. So I got the youth team job at, at Aston Villa, because of Tony Barton giving me the opportunity. And uh, it, it really went from there. I mean, in those days, you didn't have to have qualifications. I, I had obviously a football background, which was enough. Um, but but as time went by, the football qualifications came my way. But I, I got the job at the youth team and, um, and, and just found that I was okay at it. You know, I got on with the kids well. They, they liked me. You know, we had a good bunch of players. People like Tony DiRigo was in the team. Uh, lots of lads. Uh, uh, Tony Daly was one of my first apprentices. You know, so there was a few lads who did really well for themselves. And then you, you went on. You became a long before you were a manager. You were a coach. You were at Villa, as you say. You were at uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers and, and, and Middlesbrough. I went to Middlesbrough with with Bruce Rioch. Bruce was a great, uh, great friend of mine, and and was a great um, help to me in football. He encouraged me to do my my coaching qualifications, and I worked at Middlesbrough with Bruce and Colin Todd um, in from the their rise from the third division to the second division back to the first division. Um, but but three years longer as a, a youth team coach, and I just knew I needed to be a football manager. I wanted to be a football manager, so I left. Unfortunately, was asked to to go to Darlington, which was my first full time job as a, as a manager. Well, again, when I put out the fact that you were are, are coming to uh, do this program on Twitter, the number of people said, "What do you mean, Aston Villa legend? He's a Darlington legend." And there were literally dozens of those. And what did you do at Darlington that was so good? Well, I took over Darlington February in the season they got relegated. February '89. Yeah, in and and that season they actually got relegated, but they hadn't won a home game all season. My first game, I went to Rotherham, who were top of the league, and I won that game. Um, but but at the end of the season, we weren't good enough, and we were relegated to the to the conference. And the day we were relegated, there was a new chairman given the job, and he asked to see me after the game. 
And I thought, oh, here we go. This is my last game in charge. And his sentence to me was, if you go, I go. And he'd been chairman for 24 hours. So <laughs> uh, so it was brilliant. I mean, it's a great sentence, probably the greatest sentence ever said to me in football. And we set out a two-year plan to get back in the league, but we got back the first year, won the championship in the first year, and then won Division Four second year. So I had two... Two, two championship champ- seasons, two, one two after champ- the other. One after, one after another, yeah. And then I got uh, asked to go to Leicester, of course. The conference um, these days, I think there's almost no difference between the conference and the yeah. fourth tier of English football. The players are largely full-time in the conference. Yeah. Teams come out of the conference and r- just rattle straight through. To it. Yeah. But I think it was different back then. Yeah, well, we were probably one of the first teams to, to stay full-time pro. that's the big the, decision you had to make. The, yeah. That was the decision. So, again... You know, um, uh, the chairman said to me, you know, two years, if we're not back in two years, this club's under pressure. As time has shown, years on, obviously they've had a, a bigger decline, but... It's, it's, I mean, let's be honest, you're a, you're a Darlington legend. It's been an absolute sicken of what's happened to that little football club, isn't oh, it? Oh, I'm totally gutted, you know, to be honest. I mean, um, uh, I had two fantastic years, yeah, playing at the old Feetham's ground and, you know, some of the things that you do to learn about football and learn about being a manager, even coming back from matches at night time where we may have been to Yeovil or whatever, getting back at three, four in the morning and, you know, everybody runs off. So I was the manager, but I had to take the kit round the old cricket ground into the into the the, the match itself, into the ground itself. All the little jobs that you do, you know, all the the old... uh, Parks pitches used to have to train on yesterday. Go and clean the pitches before you, you you trained because everybody used to walk their dogs on the pitches. So all the things that that made you proud of what you were doing. Silly things that I used to put the kit away. I used to pack the kit. I used to answer the phone on the reception at times with Frank Gray, who was my assistant. You know, Frank was a brilliant footballer. Did great for me. It was a great education for me. Um, but my three years with Bruce before that taught me about hard work and dedication and travelling here, there and every, watching as much football as you could, trying to learn about football. So they, they were great times for me. After the successive um, promotions, uh, championships indeed, mm-hmm. with Darlington, did you, did you know you were, you were a good football manager then? It must, it must, you must know by then. I, I was enjoying it and I felt, I felt something that I'd not felt for a while. I wasn't sure about how I would do as a football manager. I was a good youth coach. I enjoyed that. Um, but well, th- the difference though, isn't it? It was different, yeah. And uh, you know, I mean, uh, I, 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 I knew the, that my team were a good team. I'd got together a good team, uh, and I remember the late great Cyril Knowles, who was manager at Darlington, fantastic footballer uh, before as Cyril as before England, Cyril yeah. died. And and Cyril used to come and see me, and he used to say to me, you know, Brian, I was manager here, and I got chances to leave, and I stayed. He said, if you do well here, you get a chance to go. You've got to go and move on. Um, and again, I got great encouragement from Cyril, you know, and, and, and Leicester knocked on the door. Um, and again, the Dick Corden chairman who gave me those wonderful words opened the door for me to leave as well. You know, he, 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 so that was a brilliant. It was a, I had an incredible two-year spell at, at Darlington. And it's sad to see how they are now. But, it, you know, I get lots of messages from people back there. Uh, they've just had a get-together. Unfortunately, I couldn't get to it. Um, but but yeah, Darlington was a, a great grounding for me. And, and as, as I say, winning the conference with Darlington gave me my career in football, coaching and management. Um, you became the manager of Leicester City in the summer of 1991. Um, far cry from today's side, largely at the top of the uh, Premier League in their new stadium and all the rest of it. Then they were a mid-table club in the <clears> second <throat> tier for several seasons. And they've been flirting with relegation, really. Yeah, I took over the season after they had finished the lowest they'd ever finished, 1991, I think it was, mm-hmm. round about that period. Um, 
And yeah, it, I, I actually studied the video of the goals that conceded the season before and they were ridiculous. Um, and I remember going into the club and, and again, I was, I was met by the local reporter whose first question in my press conference was, what's it like to be sixth choice as the manager, new manager of Leicester? The Leicester Mercury always yeah. has been a very tough yeah. paper. So I just simply asked that saying, well, you know, Having been at Darlington for a couple of years and it's been great, fantastic, but, you know, to be a manager of Leicester City is whether I was 26th choice, it wouldn't have made any difference. It was the it was the right move for me and I felt it was the right place to be. I mean, the narrative, to use the modern phrase, that the story of your time at Leicester City is eventually you get them into the Premier League. Yeah. But it's, it, there's a lot of heartbreak before that. In, in the three full seasons you had at Leicester, you got to the playoffs each time. Tell us how you made the team different, how you made it successful, and how those playoffs affected you. And tell us about the, the, your time at Leicester. Well, from a personal point of view, you know, at that time I worked with uh, Alan Evans and John Gregory and myself as a three. Uh, David Nish came in to join us at a period Leicester as well. Legend, of course. So we had, we had a, a, a backroom staff. Steve Hunt worked with me for a while as well, you know, ex-Villa player. I mean, we had a group of lads who were the right age and willing to graft and willing to work. And I remember, you know, the, the first season just kept rolling along. We played with three centre-backs. We were, we were classed by some of the um, Leicester purists as not a Leicester City team because you know we weren't playing Leicester's a club like Spurs, West Ham there yeah, are other clubs where they, they, people think they should be playing play a, a certain way yeah. but we actually did play good football people came to, 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 to learn that we were trying to play good football although after watching that video I, de I decided I certainly didn't want to concede goals so I, I played three centre-backs all the time uh, tried to keep it strong but, but we were as the season went on we got progressively better fans came around a little bit and we ended up sixth off top in the league, which was brilliant, and got to the playoffs. Um, so that was fantastic, you know. And the disappointment of losing at Wembley first time round wasn't a disappointment. And and I don't think a Leicester fan was disappointed. You lost you know, to Blackburn. The, Mike Newell got yeah, a goal, yeah. Leicester, uh, Blackburn, were, were, it's like the start of the Dalglish era and, and things, and were de destined to get up there, you know. And uh, um, it, it wasn't a major disappointment. But, but you know, we we what we needed to do after the game was straight away say, how do we come back next season? And and we had three weeks holiday. We said to all the players straight after the game, right, you've got three weeks, you're back. We're back in training. They all looked at us, but we, we knew that, you know, we had a group of players who we couldn't let just go away, give an extra few weeks off and come up and back in turn. We, we went right back into the hard work straight away. Alan, John and myself were keen to just do work. So I think our enthusiasm from the top got got right through to the players. We worked so hard. We used to do the runs with them that we were doing. Uh, you know, even even at that stage, my knee was sore, but I could run. You know, I was okay. But Alan and John were still fairly fit, um, and we we tried to lead from the front. So we went, as it turned out, went back to to Wembley for a second time round. You know, it was an incredible period, really. Ninety two, ninety three, as you say, you finished sixth in the in in the league playoff place, um, beat Portsmouth in the semi finals. The final itself at Wembley um, is against Swindon Town. Yeah. Is now regarded again. You've been involved in a few of these, Brian, uh, as one of the greatest games ever seen in the playoff. But I don't suppose you remember it quite so fondly. No, I mean we were three down, got back to three three. And you must have thought then, Brian, yeah. with all due respect, momentum is such a huge thing in football. You must have thought, here we go, we're going to win this. To be honest, I just wanted to get the ninety minutes three three. That's what I wanted. I was trying to get that message onto the field, but the players were just so carried away with the fact that they were going to get the, the extra goal. As it turned out, Swindon caught us on the counter-attack and, and, and they won the game. But I was very concerned. I, I say I was thinking, right, extra time. We, extra time, we've got a chance here. 
extra time we will win this as it turned out we blew it you know and we and that's why at the end of the game i remember people like steve thompson and and them you know crying i mean they, they, they just they knew they'd gone for it you know, we were in the ascendancy but they went too far we went a step too far we opened up and that that fragility that Leicester had had prior to me getting there was 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 back for for two minutes or so. You know? And yet, you know, it, 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 football is such a, a game of because the goals are so rare. Mm. You know, in the high scoring games, basketball, cricket, yeah. the better team usually wins. That's just the way of it. In this case, if they'd gone on the players, uh, gone reckless and got the fourth goal, everyone would be it would be heroics. It, it it's all it always depends on which way that goal falls, doesn't it? You're only as good as a result. I mean, I say that, you know, I've said that for years. People say to me, what's it like being a football manager? I say, well, the one thing is I can't win an argument with anybody if I lose a football match. You know, you can't win that argument. It just doesn't work. A football result overrides absolutely everything that goes on on a football field. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I've always had that as a statement in my mind. You know, I'm full of statements in my head. I, uh-huh. I, I rule, I'm ruled by old things, old memories. That, You're not one of these who writes up things in the dressing no, room, are you? No, I don't do things like that. No, I've never done. In fact, I rip things like that down all the time whenever I go in. Um, but I, I, I'm a great believer and was always a great believer that when you go to work, you go to work. And you go to work, you know, if it's an hour and a half, you've got to concentrate on why you're there, what we're doing. There are always certain sessions on a training f- field that you do second nature. But then there are also training sessions that you do that you're there to think about it and learn and listen and take it forward into the game. So, uh, but I'm 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 quite meticulous or have been quite meticulous about preparation, organisation, discipline, uh, but allowing people to be who they are. Going back to my days with Ron Saunders, I treat people the way I wanted to be treated myself, and if they don't respond to that, then you know I haven't got the problem. I know they're the ones with the problem. In 1993-94, um, fourth again in Division One, a third successive playoffs. Did the see? I mean, obviously, first of all, you've got to motivate the players. After mm. two, I mean, you lose the first one, you kick on. You lose a second playoff, and I think in Ipswich Town and clubs like that have been to successions of these things, yeah. and it must affect the players, particularly the older ones who realise that t- there are not infinite chances in life. How did you re-motivate the club for that that third push? Well, I looked at the, the previous two finals. The first final, we went down three or four days before. The second final, we prepared as you would do for a final game. Uh, the third one, we went down the, the night, as late as we could the night before the game, got up and had breakfast and went to, the, and went to play football. Selected the team after breakfast and surprised a few people with the team. I mean, you know, Walsh was centre forward. Um, I, you know, we, we had a big, strong team. Derby were a better football side than us. We knew that. You know, we knew they could, on their day, give us all sorts of problems. We picked, or I picked, the strongest, the toughest team I could the possibly Grayson's, pick. The Graysons, the Walshes, yeah. the Ewan Roberts, Norman Droid was in the team. Lots of height. Lots of height, lots of strength. I, I felt in open play we wouldn't win the game. I felt we had to win the game from set pieces. As it turned out, it was headed goals and, 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 and situations. But we, we, we just we picked a team to win a football match. End of story. I, I couldn't be bothered on that day to, to go home having played well and lost. We went out there with one one message, get out there and win, do whatever it takes to win, and we did it. You did. Um, Derby took the lead, Tommy Johnson got a goal for them, and then two goals from Steve Walsh just before half-time, and a very, very... It's good to score in the 87th minute, isn't yeah. it? Because uh, I know the panic sets in and all the rest of it, but it doesn't give the other team, particularly on these big occasion games, it doesn't, because they're in an unusual environment themselves, they're obviously tense about being in a playoff. If you score in the 87th minute, you're not giving... The other team's minds must unravel, mustn't they? Yeah, you know, I mean, as I've said, we, we, 
we tried to use the two other games that we'd played and lost in as a massive motivation more than anything else. You know, after the games, we used the motivation to get the next season underway. We, we didn't sulk. We didn't think we didn't give people time away from each other. We got right back in there. And each season added a little something better to the team. You know, we we continually brought somebody in who we felt would be better for us. And, um, uh, you know, there was no sulking, no nobody uh, having extra holidays, we 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 grafted for three hard years there, and I remember going down Wembley Way as it was, you know, three times in a row. We just at the front of the bus, we're just sitting looking at each other. We're back here again, and we couldn't believe it in many respects. It was an incredible achievement. You know. Obviously, people tend to talk about the club and the players. Talk mm. about yourself here, if you would. Um, what did it mean to you, having started in the conference really as a manager, mm-hmm. to now be taking a team, taking you and yourself, you become a Premier League manager. Yeah, I, I, I obviously was, you know, I surprised myself in many ways. I think lots of people, and, and all the lads I play with, or played football with, always go, they always see me go, how did you become a football manager? But I was quite studious and asked Andy Gray if I, if, if I could play the game or knew the game. I've always felt I have a knowledge of the game. Um, the difficulty probably would have been to put it over as a, as a, in a way that, that got the best out of people, but... I just led from the front. I just was always there. I was always first in. If I go to, if I'm at work, I'm always first there. You know, I, I'd hate being late, so I try and lead by example. Um, and you know, I've, I've studied. I, I watch things all the time. Um, and as you've seen with me, and I'm here today, I've got bags of stuff with me just to make sure I'm prepared for whatever. So you lead Leicester into the Premier League, but you don't spend many games as Leicester City manager. After three months, um, you go to Aston Villa, and as, as I recall. Of course, you're an Aston Villa legend, all that. Yeah. As I recall, it was one of the messiest ever man- managerial transfers. Yeah, it was awful. Um, what happened? Well, what happened was, you know, I mean, obviously, the, the you know, we were all aware that, that Aston Villa wanted me to go there. Um, and a board meeting was called, and I was asked to go into the board meeting. Um, uh, I spoke my case across to the board, and at first they said, well, no, we're not accepting it. Um, so, you know, that, that was how it finished first day. Um, I spoke to the chairman that night and said, look, I, I need to speak to the board again. So they called a board meeting the next day. I went into the board meet, meeting with a letter. I was determined to resign. I said, look, I mean, at the end of the day, if I can't be manager of Aston Villa, I'm not going to be manager of Leicester City. And if Leicester City don't let me go, then I won't be the manager of Aston Villa. Now, some smart so-and-so somewhere along the line, I'd put that in writing, had uh, released that to the press, even though at the end of that meeting, the team, the club had said to me, look, Brian, if that's how you feel... We'll organise some compensation. You just go and talk to Aston Villa. But uh, my sadly, my second game in charge of Villa was back at Filbert Street. And that one passage out of a letter that I'd written to the club, which said, I won't be the next manager of Aston Villa, was printed on the, the front page of a, of a national newspaper. And uh, I had the, the title of Judas ahead of it. So I had 25,000 people at Leicester City with Judas placards from a, a, a national paper. But I had been given permission. I had been given permission from the club. They supposedly were going to take me to court, but never did because of the obviously the, nobody would tell a lie. But but somebody had took that one extract from a letter, had it printed by a national newspaper, and it looked very very messy. Um, yeah, there was a, I've got a long quote here from the then Leicester chairman George Martin. Sorry, Martin George, not George Martin, the producer of the Beatles. Martin <laughs> George, the producer of Leicester City at the time. Um, which is very full of legal language and threatened to sue and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, Doug Ellis, uh, he started his statement, it's the return of the prodigal, classic <laughs> Ellis. All right, let me ask you this. How is it with Leicester City fans now? Because you did get them back to the Premier League, yeah. got three successive playoffs. Has this clouded your relationship with that club? 
I don't think so. I, I think every now and again, there's always somebody who'll shout something at me, as as they would do in front of people, just maybe to show off a little bit. But generally speaking, I went to Leicester City six, seven times last season to watch them play. I have a, a really good friend of mine who sponsors the club and sponsors matches. So I go and have hospitality. Ali Mocklin, who I sold, normally normally interviews me with a little scowl on his face occasionally. But Ali and I get on fine. Walsh is always there, so I see the boys. They're always around the hospitality areas. Um, no, I, I, I guess fine, you know I mean? Generally speaking, fine. I always get the odd, odd criticism. Um, the unique thing about when I left was I actually went to Villa on my 41st birthday and I didn't realise it was my birthday. I, and, and time after, obviously... Uh, I can still see the press conference, and someone said to me, "Happy birthday!" And I went, "Yeah, well, Craig, yeah, it was my, it was the 25th of November. I I, I joined, and I hadn't even realised it was my birthday." You didn't impose your musical taste in any dressing rooms, did you, Brian? No, I, my musical tastes were purely left to my own bedroom when I was a, a young lad in digs and things like that. You know, I mean, Jethro Tull, Free, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple. Um, it didn't go down too well, in all fairness. So, um, yeah, but I, that's just the way I, I, I like that type of music. Do you still like it now? I still listen to it now, every now and again. Yeah, and I, I do a bit. Like the other extreme, I go to a little bit of James Taylor and Lindisfarne. I mean, coming back from the, the North Fog on the Tyne, I can't help but watch, listen to that all the, all the time. So, yeah, music. I am. I have my own taste. Uh, and stick to oh, it. Most of it's very good from what I've yeah. heard so far. Yeah, you don't want to go in and you don't, beyond uh, beyond deep purple. You don't want to go any more metal than that for my taste. But uh, each to their own, you know. Um, you become Aston Villa manager in, in tremendously controversial circumstances, yeah. as we talked about, um, and you inherit, as you've already mentioned, I think, a, a, a squad of uh, an aging squad, which is sometimes good. It's experienced, and sometimes it just becomes aging, doesn't it? Yeah, it was. You know, I mean, the, the lads were fine with me, in fairness. Um, but I think as you know, back in 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 '94, the, mm-hmm. the transfer window was open all the time. So, you know, I signed Ian Taylor, I signed Gary Charles, I signed Tommy Johnson, younger lads, and 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 that you could see the message was getting through to the dressing room. So, you know, we had a a real period where everything picked up. Then we had this period after January where everybody was thinking, well, it might be me to leave now. Kevin Richardson had gone off to to Coventry, um, and and there was that definite change going on. So we had a little bit of a, a sticky period when the younger players came in at first but the window was always open so it made it easier for a manager then to talk to a player you could say to a player okay look if you're not happy we'll find you a club I mean nowadays if, if even if they're unhappy they're at your club basically most of the season aren't they really so it gave me an opportunity to, to move things around a little bit I can't tell you how much I despise the transfer window I think it doesn't help coaches I know they oh you should be able to coach the players make them better you sometimes need to invigorate a team and more importantly sometimes you need to get people out of a club or out of a squad for their own good as much as anything but there it is you kept Villa up then 95-96 was a great season for Aston Villa yeah, we, we had a, a, a fantastic time. I mean, uh, you know, we went to fourth off top in the league, which was brilliant. We we started playing really well. Our our football in the early part of the season really surprised people. For opening game of the season, you know, we beat Manchester United. Three goals to one. Yeah. In a game that, of course, is, is now infamous. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, the, you're, the yeah. an, you're the answer to the pub quiz question. Yeah. Who were Manchester United playing when on match of the day, Alan Hansen said, you'll never win anything with kids. Absolutely. It was your Aston Villa team. Yeah, absolutely. And you'd taken United apart. We, we played really well. Milosevic and York up front were, were a breath of, breath of fresh air. Da- Draper, Townsend, Taylor in midfield. And Gareth Southgate playing as a centre-back. You know, I mean, We signed Gareth predominantly as a midfield player. Pre-season, we, we, we had this thing. We, we put him in the back and, and you know all three of us, Alan, John and myself, looked at each other and went, 
we found it. We found the key. We had McGrath, we had Hugo Egeog, we had Steve Staunton. But between the four, we had we had three at any stage that could keep us very solid. But but Southgate was a massive key. To this day, I say he's the best signing I've ever had because of how he, you know, we signed him and six weeks later he was an England international as a centre-back and he went on to do brilliant things. Gareth was, he just read the game so well, but the whole side gelled together absolutely perfectly. Um, yes, they all never win anything with kids, quote, I say from that early game goes into history. You finished fourth in the league and I, I guess um, from when we did your Sporting Inquisition, we know how much you value the fact that you took your former club to Wembley uh, that year in the League Cup um, and won. Let me just remind you, I'm sure, actually, because you've all bring your, you brought with you a whole desk full of notes, <laughs> you don't need reminding that Aston Villa's route to the uh, Cup final that year, you uh, played Peterborough, um, then um, uh, you played uh, Stockport County, Queen's Park Rangers, Wolves beat Arsenal in the semi-final. Any of those games you remember particularly? Certainly the semi-final because Bruce Rioch was manager of Arsenal at the time. Who was your mentor? Who yeah. was very much my mentor as a younger coach, and um, they actually battered us. You know, with, they battered us two-two at the, their place. Dwight scored two late goals and battered us nil-nil at Villa Park, but we won on the away goals. And should be remembered, this was the one year that Bruce Rioch had in charge of Arsenal. He looked like an Arsenal manager with his blazer and his tie. Really suited it, and. Of course, he was dismissed after one year um, and Arsene Wenger came in and the rest is history. Mm. The thing we always have to remember is that he had signed uh, Dennis Bergkamp, who was as much a catalyst yeah. for the change in Arsenal's fortunes as Arsene Wenger. Yeah, I mean, Bruce, for me, I mean, I, the three years I worked with Bruce at, uh, at Middlesbrough, you know, we used to go out every Friday night to Stockport to watch a game of football. And every night, we, every Friday night we drove back, we used to say, why have we been there? It'd be foggy. We're going over the M62, over the over the hills there. And we were saying, Craigie, you know, we we risked sort of life and limb to, to go to football Snake matches. Palace isn't that dangerous. <laughs> it, it was awful, honestly. <laughs> I mean, we'd be travelling back in snow and fog and everything. But we, we worked. And Colin Todd, the three of us, we used to go up to Scotland in one car, disappear to watch three games of football, meet up again, go back. Bruce taught me all about Work, working hard and the rewards that hard work would give you and you know beating him that game um, although I really enjoyed it mm-hmm. you know at the same time um, I'd beaten someone who, who really sort of led pushed my career on definitely he gave me the impetus to, to take up uh, the management side of things and uh, I'll, I'll always be grateful to him for that which takes us to the final at Wembley um, and just as we talked about some of the games you played in and managed in at Wembley and how close and brilliant they were and games mm-hmm. that live long in the memory, unless you support Aston Villa or Leeds United, that final won't stay long in the memory, except to say it was probably the most one-sided cup final since Liverpool beat Newcastle in the FA Cup in the early 70s. 3-0 victory for your Aston Villa team. Yeah, and I mean, the opening goal was the, the start of it all because Savo, had, Savo Milosevic had had a fair amount of criticism. You know, he'd scored a few goals, but he was a wonderful partner for Dwight, a wonderful partner. He worked really hard. He led the line well. His touch was really good, but he did miss a couple of chances here, there and everywhere and was quite a temperamental young man. But the goal he scored to open it up was was just brilliant. You know, 30 yards right into the top corner. Uh, and from there on in, we just, we just well, we didn't cruise through the game, but we played really well. We were the stronger team. We beat a Leeds team who, you know, had some good players in it. But our, our players and our, our group that, that year were just so well matched. I, I, even then, I would be thinking about a 15-year-old burning the rubbish at the back of the Witten stand, you know, as an apprentice, sweeping the terrace and all of those things. And there I was, the manager of the club that, that, that took me on at 15 and winning a cup. As you, say, you know, we were talking about what an excellent group of players you had. I mean, I just noticed the three centre-backs that day, Southgate, McGrath, 
Ehog, one as good as the other. All brilliant footballers in their time. Um, Alan Wright, a microscopic yeah. left wing back, but a very yeah. good footballer. And you said plenty of work and skill in Taylor and Draper and Townsend in midfield. Milosevic and York up front. Still leaves you with a problem, doesn't it? How do you move that group of players in the Premier League era into the into the top four? Because the following season you finish fifth. It's very difficult to make that <laughs> last jump, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, we had a good group. Um, uh, I think, uh, you know, that next year, I remember Gary Charles getting a real bad injury and... and and that really upset the players, you know. He, he bust his ankle, and uh, you know his ankle was drooping on the pitch. And it was towards the end we had a we were in pretty good shape at the time, and it had a massive effect losing one of the top players in the and 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 football was beginning to move on. People were beginning to get bigger squads then, you know, and and, and we were still a very compact small yeah, people squad. People now got two players yeah, for every position. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you know we weren't quite there, and and that was the next step to try and bring the squad on up to a modern day standard, but then. I'll ex- get players to accept that some days they might not play. Now that was that was the next step which which Villa needed to try and go on to. And in the summer of 1997, I mean, I don't know whether you lost your mind or something. Um, you <laughs> broke you broke Aston Villa's club record fee. Uh, it doesn't sound much now, but then it was a lot of money, seven million pounds to sign somebody called Stan Collymore. What's the matter with you? Well, I mean, all I can say to that is you go back and watch the Fowler Collymore uh, combination and and. You can't help but look and say, "This is a player," and that. And Stan and I got on really well. And Stan and I would have. Uh, the problem was integrating the, the group. Then, as I've said, we then had Milosevic, we had York, we had Collymore. Now, how do we play? Or which two of them do we play? Or do we play one of them? Or do? And and I think initially I tried to to accommodate all three, and that combination never worked. Any two of the three would have worked. Um, but I, I was completely taken by the Fowler Collymore. Uh, they got nearly fifty goals. They together were absolutely the incredible. Yeah. You know, I mean, we made inquiries about Andy Cole as well, which we 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 tried to do. That never came off for us. We'd made inquiries about Ferdinand before that as well. Um, I'm only teasing. I actually think that if you remember, Stan, right foot, left oh, foot, brilliant, good in the air, incredible speed over the ground for a big, big bloke. Yeah, fantastic footballer. Yeah, as I said, we, it was all about combinations then, and we had three good players. And we were pre the period where people probably accepted that, that they would be out this game and you had a little combination going. So, you know, to try and play the three probably was a mistake on my part. Um, but that was me learning about the new football as it was about to become. And yet within months of breaking the club's records, obviously there was confidence mm. in you, winning a trophy. Um, in February of 1998, you resigned as Aston Villa manager. You can't have done that easily because the club is very close to your heart. What happened? I think it was just a period. I mean, generally speaking, if you look at Villa's history, generally speaking, managers have been there three years, three and a half years max. It, it's it's just a common trait about around the club. Um, I was a little bit un, unhappy. I'd worked hard for I think it was something like eight years, you know, non-stop. They talk about three weeks holiday at Leicester. I didn't have any holidays, you know. I mean, I was working the whole time. And I think it was a combination of many, many things. You know, I was unhappy away from football. Um, I wasn't totally happy in my private life, you know. And and I think it just got at me. And I remember, you know, Doug rang me one day. And let's face it, Doug rang me every day, all day and all night. You Is know? that right? And, and, and I got on well with Doug. I mean, yeah. I, I, I really respect him. But it was just it was just the wrong time, the wrong day, the wrong place. And I just, I just needed to have a breather. And I just needed to get out. In fairness to Doug, he wanted me to stay. By that time, John Gregory had left me. I always remember this as well. And, and John had been, it had been mentioned to speak to John to bring him back to see if it would, if he wanted to come back. He'd gone off to Wickham to be, a, he wanted to be a manager. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so 
um, that that was something that was talked to me about. But I didn't want to step out to one side. I didn't I didn't want to, you know. It was talked about John coming back and me just having more of a role for a time, just to to, to just to relax a little bit. I I decided that wasn't for me. Um, and you know when I and I just left. I just left, shook Doug's hand and and went and just said I need a breather. Okay, Qu- a very quick question on the back of that. You know, you're you think deeply about things, Brian. Uh, nearly two decades on, do you regret it? Would you do it? Would you have done it again? No, because I mean, life is. There's lots of things in life that are very important. Um, so there's lots of things away from football that are very important for me. Um, so I never have regrets. I never have regrets about anything like that. My life's moved on. Um, I'd like to work in football. You know, I've took a little breather away from it again. But um, I'm. I am. As a person, I think away from football, I'm happier now than I've ever been in my life. Um, after you resigned from Aston Villa manager, you were, you went to Stoke, and it starts the rest of your managerial career. You still have you you, you win promotions and things. Um, it does seem like Aston Villa after Aston Villa. Am I wrong in thinking um, that it could never be as great for you because you're a Villa man, or is that not right? You're a professional. Um, I'm a professional. A person in terms of my work, um, there were there were differences. I think there was a peak for me, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, there were certain things that you know, like I've said, that probably didn't work for me. So I decided to step down a little bit. Stoke were back into the old uh, Division One, Division Two, as it was then, but it's yeah. Division second One, second level. Yeah, second level. Um, so you know, it was an opportunity to to go back and start enjoying doing a bit of work again, a bit of coaching. Um, at Stoke for the first two months, I was manager of the month. The first two months, and then the the club decided to be selling. It was it was no it was known that it was up for sale, and things were changing there. Um, and it got more and more difficult. I got rid of people who were there was a an ITV collapse. There was a money from ITV. There was the collapse there, so I had to get rid of the the guys who were major earners. And we finished. I think it was eighth off top in that first season. You were eighth, so, yes. Yeah. So two managerial manager of the month awards, eighth off top. Just missed out on the playoffs. It wasn't bad, but. I still wasn't happy. I did 12 months and it was my decision to leave again. I, I, I really then wanted a, a breather from the game. I'd, I'd had a three-month breather when I left Villa. I remember being sort of courted by you know agents connected with Stoke City to come back. Saw the new ground and thought I would help. I, it, it appealed to me. Um, but I still wasn't 100% over whatever it was I needed to get over. You know. So why did you go to West Brom then? Well, now that was a crazy one in fairness. Um uh, I'd, I'd just bought myself a flat in Birmingham and I'd started to live on my own. Um, and ironically, I got an offer off West Brom. Now, my flat was 10 minutes away from West Brom. And I look back and, I, you know, I often say, you know, I saw Alex McLeish go to Villa and, and he'd been at Birmingham City. And on reflection... What, what was he thinking? Yeah. It, you know, what was he thinking? You know, what, what when you go to these, your, your nearest rivals... Only Harry Redknapp can get away with yeah, it. Yeah, you know, and as soon as I went to West Brom, I, as soon as I lost a game at West Brom, the criticism came my way. Um, we actually got a, a seven-game start of the season, which was pretty good. But then I became a Villa man in a in a West Brom job. But there were other there were other factors. The, you know, the chairman sold the club to to a gentleman who didn't really want me there. Um, uh, Kevin Kilban was sold behind my back without me knowing. I remember going into a meeting up at Grimsby. It was, and named the team. And Kevin, I named in the team. And and after the team meeting, Kevin came to me and said, "But Gaffer, I'm going to to Sunderland tomorrow." I was the only person at the club who didn't know. So I was completely finished by the board with that one. 
that completely blew anything or anything that I had. And all the players knew that I wasn't away. All the players knew that the new chairman didn't want me away. So, you know, it just it just petered out. And I left after six months, I think it was. Well, I'm glad, um, therefore, that the, the latter two jobs, uh, we'll leave Wrexham out of it because you were doing a, f- a friend a favour there. Um, it would have been a, a disappointing end to your managerial career, Brian, um, if indeed that's what we're talking about. But you went on to both Hull and Tranmere and got teams into the playoffs again. You still got it. Yeah, I got sacked when they were fourth off top at all. I mean, it was a ridiculous decision. You know, and Jan Molby was given the job after me. He won one game in 19. And I lost a game on a Friday night. We were third off top on the Friday. I was fourth off top on the Monday and I got the sack. Um, it was crazy. It was a, a crazy decision. One which I have a letter in writing off the chairman saying, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. You know, which means nothing in many respects, but it's true. Tranmere, I took to the... I took over to Tranmere when they were third off bottom in the league. We finished eighth my first season. We got into the playoffs the second season uh, and, and got to the quarter final of the FA Cup and lost to Millwall the year Millwall got to the final. So I had two great years at, uh, at Tranmere. I mean, you were lucky, Brian, in one way. You worked, uh, uh, you know, I know you, you, you could still coach and manage teams now. Absolutely right. Still a young man. But you worked just before the real mania for turning coaches over. Now, I'm, I'm, of course, mm. I'm a great encourager of this. I think I can tell after six weeks whether a manager's going to work at a club or not. But um, the, 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 now, the average life expectancy outside the Premier League, and it's changing in the Premier yeah, League as well, yeah. it's, it's less than a year. I mean, it's very, very difficult to see what people can... You have to, you have to get in there and almost succeed within the first six weeks, otherwise you're doomed, Well, you? I think the, the problem for Premier League managers these days, if, if you go eight games without winning a game, you're under pressure, you know, you, as, as few as that. I mean, it, it, it really is uh, quite ridiculous. There's a, a call all the time for, you know, a change if, if that type of run comes into your situation. So it's more and more difficult. People demand so much. There is so much money around. People are, are wanting to make sure they stay in the Premier League or, or do well in the Premier League, depending on which category you come into. So it can be even a, a run of eight games that, that sees a, a complete changeover. OK, well, this is harder for you to talk about. Uh, you say you went to Wrexham. And you, that was the last time we saw you being a professional manager. Your club that you played for with such distinction, managed with such distinction, Aston Villa. We're recording this programme, just for the sake of people listening to it in other times, in the run-up to Christmas 2015. And Aston Villa, six points they've got, and they are bottom of the Premier League. It looks to me like a thankless task. They've put Remy Gard in charge. I just don't see the players at Aston Villa to save, to save them from relegation. A, how have they got themselves in this situation? And B, if we had Remy Gard in the room with us now, what, what could you possibly say to the man? Well, I think the thing is, uh, you know, it is a, a very, very difficult situation. I have met Remy Gard and I spoke to him the other day. And I, but my situation, I went into, in an, into the club in the November when we were third off bottom. But as I've said, the transfer market was different. All sorts of things are different there. So he has probably the toughest task that there is around. I think what what uh, what Villa have right now is a is a two week period where they play Newcastle, Sunderland, um, and Norwich. Now those three games on top of the West Ham game as well, uh, and and I've been on quoted on local radio and have said on local radio at the end of this particular two week period they must be closer to the teams above them. I mean if they lose at Newcastle, Norwich, uh, and Sunderland, the, the gap is 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 a gap that can't be breached. Should they get results at those three clubs, that could give them. Uh, the, enough pressure to put on the teams above them for Chelsea, them for, for them <laughs> for them to look over their shoulders and feel and feel worried about it. It is achievable, but it this next two week period is massive, and I think everybody knows that. I can't bring myself right now to to say 
they are going to get relegated right now. I really can't do well, it's that. It's not a matter of fact, is it? It's not yet a matter of fact. It's they not. Could, things it's, could change. It's not. What, what, what's un, what you can't deny is that from the period when Martin was getting the team to fifth and sixth place in the league, something has gone wrong at that famous old football club. Um, I, I'm not a Villa fan. I have an untrained eye. I have to listen to Stan Collymore going on and on <laughs> to me about it. But it strikes me that the American owners have just not got to grips with what it me- means to own an English football club in the top league. Yeah, I, you know, you could. That's definitely an argument, and that's the argument that the the, the everyday fan has. Um, I would say, and I, I think it is a, an argument that could Thank be looked you have at. A tremendous put down. <laughs> I, I I think you could you could also argue from a distance from mm. where I am, yes. and say, you know, when I went to Aston Villa, I thought I spent my money fairly wisely, you know, and I looked at players and and built a team. Sometimes it didn't have to be a nine million pound player to make the team. Ian Taylor, you know, next to nothing. Alan Wright. You know, five foot six left back, but winning headers all over the place. The balance of the team, Mark Draper, you know, and then then hanging on to the McGraths and the Townsends uh, to to really make it work. So sometimes you can look at the management and and uh, and say, you know, some of the buys have just not worked. Um, Charles and Zogby and nine million pound, you know, never really settled into the club at all. You know, on a contract that nobody else can take over. Um, there's lots of players there which which it hasn't worked for. So yes, there is there is there's definitely been a, a, a change of of plan around the place. But I would also argue that um, you know at times some of the recruitment has left a lot to be desired. Uh, usually, I usually ask people at this stage uh, what they're up to now and how happy they are. I'm reasonably happy. I mean, I'd like to. I I, I miss football. I've had a, a little period out of it. I'd like to be involved in it somewhere along the line. I don't, I'm not necessarily sure it, it's the football management side, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't turn that away right mm-hmm. now. I've not been actively looking to get back into the game in that capacity, but I think I know an awful lot about the game and have seen an awful lot. And the last four, three and a half, four years. Being a co-commentator on all the prep I've done on football matches, I now co-commentate on about 80 games a season. So I'm watching loads of football, mm-hmm. European football matches, um, uh, Premier League matches, but I still do conference matches for, for some TV companies. Um, on top of that, I work out in Jersey as the, uh, I've been consulting out there. They've just applied to UEFA to get into the European Championship. So that's a massive story potentially. Mm-hmm. In its, So I'm very busy. I'm always active. I never sit still. Um, and, you know, I mean, at home life, I have three beautiful young children. Uh, Lizzie and I have been together 15 years now. We've got three kids. You know, I mean, I'm a 62-year-old father of a four-year-old baby girl, which keeps Is that me... good? It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I am... A, I'd like to... I mean, I, my two grown-up sons will probably never forgive me for this, but I am a far better father now than I ever was when I was well, young. you've probably got more time more to time, do it. Exactly. Right. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I, life in that respect is fantastic. I, I Right now, having had a spell doing all the jobs I've done, I have a little... There's a little candle still burning saying, you know something, I could help somebody somewhere along well, the line. Well, I was going to say, you clearly think so deeply and so clearly about the game, yeah. uh, Brian, that it would be um, a shame if somebody didn't um, say, OK, and, and you're right, you, you recognise in yourself that you may not be a manager just now um, because it brings an awful lot of responsibility, time consuming, and all the rest of it. But it would be a shame if your knowledge of the game and the way you've spoken about it over the last two hours was allowed to drift away. But that's what tends to happen, isn't it, I guess? It is. I mean, you know, right now I'm, I'm probably on that, that side which is labelled as, oh, Brian Little was a football manager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but sure. um, yeah, and, and that, so that that's there. I mean, I live with that. It doesn't bother me. You know, I put up with that. Uh, but I still think, as I've said on many occasions, you know, that sometimes someone who can give some advice out there, 
And, and generally speaking, as I've said, I've managed in the top six flights of English football now at all levels. I've been at most grounds in the country. There's always something that a young manager who perhaps is cutting your teeth, uh, who hasn't been to, hasn't seen, hasn't acknowledged, you know, different players at different levels. So, um, you know, I, I, I sort of live in hope that perhaps somewhere along the line there might be another, another chapter. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top talk sport content. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.